This is the adventure with more excitement, more action, more danger, and more, much more, Roger Moore, as James Bond, I mean, Harold Pelham as the confused guy who has mental issues, like me, that we're supposed to care about. Welcome. Yeah, the mo- more is only more you actually get in this film. <laughs> Welcome to the Philly Club. I'm Corry. He's my doppelganger, Henrik. Nice to be here once again. Unfortunately. <laughs> Unfortunately. I, I don't know. At this point, this may be a saving grace doing this podcast. <laughs> to avoid what? To, 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 uh, to avoid take, uh, taking a you know repetition of the last week. Things have been exciting. <laughs> I must tell you that. <laughs> <clears throat> I bet you had some funny stories with your... With your dearest, or something like I, that. I can, I, I, I can actually, you know, I can very much relate to today's movie, <laughs> since also for the past week I've heard a lot of talk that somewhere in Rovaniemi there is a guy who <clears throat> looks like me, sounds like me, and talks like me, and has been doing some really stupid shit throughout the week, and I myself don't have no recollection of any of that, so must be a doppelganger. Oh, would it also be that this doppelganger had the hangover of the millennium? It, it, it could be, you know, the madman has to be stopped. God damn, I think he has infiltrated my WhatsApp as well. We are two Finnish podcasting celebrities, you know, it seems. I studied media and it was of great use. Now I work in IT in Poland and Henrik currently studies media as well. Also to be someday able to work in Poland. <laughs> Welcome, we have space here. Only 200 fins or so. But Henrik will be the Master of Arts, a slightly more educated sounding title than mine, and a future handjob designer on Fifth Avenue, right? <laughs> that, that actually would be an upgrade to my, to my work situation at the moment. So, today's film... It has been officially two years since Sir Roger Moore sadly passed away on May 23rd, 2017, at the age of 89, after a short battle with cancer. So I wanted to commemorate this man and pick out something else than the obvious choice, which would be James Bond, of course. And there is this film that he starred in three years before, Bond. It's called The Man Who Haunted Himself, uh, of Moore's performance. Moore himself has said, quote, It was a film I actually got to act in, rather than just being all white teeth and flippant and heroic. This statement more than likely is true, Henrik. I, I don't know. It's a, it's a statement that says a hell of a lot about Moore himself. Just like the fact that this... Uh, I've come to understand that this is Moore's favorite film from his own filmography. As far as his acting goes, at least, there was another title that he mentioned that he mentioned as, I believe, as his like best overall film. But acting wise, this is his favorite for sure. It says a lot. It, it, it says incredibly a lot. Well, 
I kind of like this quote, and in almost anything the guy has said, you can always hear that he has a lot of like self-deprecative humor, which I love. This man has zero illusions about himself. That's why he has been kind of a kind of a father figure for me in a sense. Like he has guided me into the right direction. I think not being a complete asshole and making fun of yourself is obviously a good way of communicating with people. Yeah, that it is. That it is. There's also you know a philosophy I follow, which is that basically all humor happens on someone else's expense. And because of that, if you if you make fun about subject matter A, you also have to make fun of basically all the other subject matters as well, especially those that are hard and painful for you. Exactly, it's kind of a protective mechanism as well, and not necessarily it, nothing it, it, wrong it, with that. Um, no, not nothing wrong as as long as you. Stay true to it and make sure that, you know, you save the hardest punches for yourself. Because a lot of times it seems people take this attitude that I'm just making fun of everything. And then they actually don't stay true to it. They actually get extremely defensive. Once again, they are dealing with subject matters that are painful for them. And that, I would say, is precisely the wrong attitude to take. The more the joke hurts you, the more you should be actually making it. Henrik, are you how familiar with the personality of Roger Moore? Because I think it would be something kind of interesting to delve into, to read a bunch of his books or something when you, whenever you might get such of a abundance of time. Because this guy is really like a class act, I must say. I've I've come to understand that he is. I myself am not that familiar with more as a person, as a, as a man. I'm more familiar with his films and what he says through his on-screen characters. Yeah, I I do know that he has written pretty famous autobiography, but I haven't read it. Just like I haven't read the Michael Caine autobiography either. I've read one of his books. Uh, I've read uh, My Word is My Bond, the autobiography. And yeah, actually, he was in Finland, Espo, of all the places in the world, once in, I believe, 2008 or nine, promoting this book in the Cello shopping center. He was there talking for like 30 minutes to the crowd, and then he went to the book signing event, which I think was in Suomalainen Kirjakauppa. And um, there I got to, like, look the man in the eye. And <laughs> and when he was signing my book, I told him that uh, he was my favorite James Bond. And I wasn't sure if, if I was com- being completely honest there, and I think he noticed, I'm not sure... But his answer was kind of crumpy sounding or tired or I don't care type of answer. It was just thank you or something like that. Pretty, pretty like uh, dryly. But uh, I will grant him that, that he was probably extremely tired because he did not get enough sleep before 
going to that event, so that could explain a lot. Like, who cares if this Finnish guy thinks he's the best Bond of all time? I think he has heard it like billions of times. Truth to be told, I just wanted to say something to the guy. And yay! You, sh- you sh- should have said something that most, I-, I guess most people haven't told to him, have been too afraid to say to him and just state that Moonraker really sucks ass. <laughs> yeah, your chest looks kind of weird. Roger. <laughs> But all chests aside, this film it's originally based on a 224-page book called *The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham* by Anthony Armstrong. Unfortunately, once again, apparently planet Earth has kind of depleted its resources of this book. So I was. Unable to find it, except a paperback copy for $150 on Amazon. So that, I'm afraid, is outside of the budget of this podcast. Money well spent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, yeah. the book, book is a curious case because, like you said... Oh, Benjamin Button, carry on. Because, like you said, A, it's extremely hard to find, it's very expensive, and B... For some odd reason, this story has been remade at least twice. Like like the film we are talking about today, The Man Who Haunted Himself, it is the second remake of the story. Yep. It is the third time that the story has been filmed. That is true. There is the Alfred Hitchcock Presents version, uh, which I understand lasts about eight and a half minutes. And oh yeah, yeah, there was, there was, and there is also two TV movies. So this is oh. th- this is third remake o- of the story and the fourth time that it has been filmed. I stand corrected. Well, yeah, even if I had spent 150 bucks for, for this book, then comes the problem of me not having a proper address at the moment, and then I would need to order it to Henrik's apartment once again. And only he would get to read it, yep. unless he wants to spend five hours in front of a scanner doing... Y- you know, the things I do for this <laughs> podcast, I actually would have scanned it, simply to say that I've fucking done it. <laughs> well, yeah, which is of course what we want, supporting this podcast, because that would equal piracy. So, But anyway, I'm getting a bit frustrated in this podcast, not being able to read some of these original works. Related to the films we are looking at, I guess we should up the ante and start ordering these books months in advance, <laughs> and then and then <laughs> pretend that we had the time to actually read them as well. Yeah, you you know, half of the thing is that you just own a physical copy of the book so that you can show it that it is in your bookshelf. Yeah, I'm this smart. I was able to use Amazon and order it to my doorstep. Yep, and didn't read it. Um, let's get to cast and crew. Much more Roger Moore. Well, what to say about Sir Roger Moore? Of course, this is, uh, he is forever best known as the guy who played James Bond and replaced the now reluctant Sean Connery in the role. Henrik, do you want to spoil it already? Who's your favorite James Bond? Not at this point, because it is still very much a tie. Okay. So, yeah, hush, hush. Also, he's very much known for his extremely modest and hilarious self-deprecating humor, as mentioned. But uh, there was one quote that caught my eye. Quote, Of course, I do my own stunts. 
and I also do my own lying. <laughs> oh, or quote, I've never received a nomination for an Academy Award, and that after I went to the trouble of learning two more facial expressions. <laughs> <laughs> and um, outside of Bond, he's most known for his performances in the Saint TV series, I would say, which is the second best known work from more after Bond. He has also starred in Ivanhoe TV series, Maverick TV series, The Persuaders TV series, and the film The Cannonball Run, which, well, it's just brainless entertainment, really. Then there is North... Just like his Bond film. <laughs> then, there... <clears throat> then there is North Sea Hijack, Curse of the Pink Panther, The Man Who Wouldn't Die TV movie, that I have seen, actually, and Spice World if you count it. And who wouldn't? <laughs> In the Roger Moore's filmography. Oh dear. To be perfectly clear, he unluckily starred in a bunch of flops before Bond and Bond, and again in a bunch of flops after Bond. If one would have to define his acting career in short, I'd say he's Bond and he's the saint. That's it. As far as mannerisms, he will be remembered as the Good-looking, self-deprecating, humorous, but suave uh, English gentleman who kept raising his eyebrow in every goddamn film. Yeah, and when it comes to his voice, he's, he will always be remembered playing Tap Lazenby in the 2010 film Cats and Dogs, The Revenge of Kitty Calore. <laughs> and who could ever forget his eternal nickname from Curse of the Pink Panther? He was not listed as Roger Moore in the end credits, but as Turk Thrust 2. And since I saw this title for him, I just started calling him Turk Thrust 2, because that was funny for a teenager. Okay, but who the hell is this guy anyway? He was an English gentleman, born in London. Mother was born in Calcutta, India, to a British family. In the 40s, he became a film extra and started to pursue an acting career. Served in the Second World War, Henrik. Due to his looks and suaveness, he then signed a deal with MGM. But the films he did, such as Diane, became huge flops. Hence, only after two years, MGM ended the deal. More than went on to do a lot of TV. Found some fame with, well, the man who haunted himself, which actually wasn't really a box office success in any way. But it kind of proved his acting abilities, apparently. Uh, so shortly after, he was offered the role for Bond. He didn't do anything notable film-wise after Bond. More notable after Bond would be his contributions to UNICEF, Henrik, as its longtime supporter and its goodwill ambassador. Which he just couldn't help but remind us all that you have to support UNICEF. Please call this number and... Send us your money. At every turn, he would have interviews about James Bond. I'm sure he had done that like quadrillion times, but still, you know, kind of hijacking the <laughs> interviewer and saying that, oh, well, yeah, it was a good film, but fuck that film, just call UNICEF and give them money. Uh, was he like that also in in your book signing? Like, did, did, did he sign your book, please send money to UNICEF, yeah, Roger Moore? No, but uh, I have to say that in his later later years, he was kind of like that, that he really didn't want to talk about Bond. It was really evident, or his film career, because he thought he was just super lucky to get into film business anyway. And 
he just wanted to always to bring the conversation somewhere else to, to subjects that do matter and in a way in an older and mature age now I understand where he's coming from of course so yeah then we have Hildegard Neil playing Eve Pelham the wife of Pelham as it happens she is well what she is what Henrik do you know she is pretty much nothing that spectacular actually a- at least on what i've seen or more notably what i haven't seen of her work that is correct sir because yeah it, it, it... most notable i guess from the tv adaptations of shakespeare's plays which are, are something that on have not been aired or you know imported to finland what is with finland and films and manga so hard to get to them still I, i don't know with shakespeare it's kind of the case that well there there's so many goddamn adaptations of shakespeare's plays that at some point you couldn't even sell the dvds in finland anymore because well for example king lear or macbeth or you know henry the fifth there is countless of adaptations So the Finnish postal office got confused and saw that oh we have already sent this to Fink you know we will send the rest of the Shakespeare yep. stuff back. Yep. Well yeah I guess she's known for Anthony and Cleopatra somewhat and King Lear and Macbeth. Mostly known for a TV series career that spans like 40 years. He's married to Brian Blessed. Do you know Brian Blessed? Well who wouldn't? <laughs> I would say the most famous GPS navigation system voice worker out there. Oh, really? Yeah, th- there actually is. There, there is a GPS voice track from Brian Blessed, and it is absolutely, you know, top-notch quality material. It is absolutely hilarious. If you have a car and it has a GPS system where you can actually, you know, import your own voice profiles... And change the sound. Who reads you the instructions? I can, you know, I can give my recommendation to the Brian Blessed audio track. So it's a British accent, yeah. It is. It is, and it is extremely clear, extremely loud. After 200 meters, you have arrived that... your destination. <laughs> Fre- <laughs> Freddie Jones plays the psychiatrist of Mr. Pelham. Freddie Jones is some sort of a legend in film circles, many praising his acting skills and original style. On the other hand, he has been also very much criticized for his caricature-like acting. Nevertheless, a known character actor also played Thufir Hafat in the 1984 film Dune, based on the book Dune, a new film adaptation of Dune is coming soon. Freddie Jones. Well, Henrik, are you a big fan? I am somewhat. I I do understand the criticism that he plays caricatures. I I, I would say that there are cases where he doesn't do that. For example, I liked him a lot in The Elephant Man. Also, he can act. He can. He can act, but he... Well, like you see in today's film, he has the nasty habit of, you know, going to the caricature the moment the director gives him enough free leash to do that. Yeah, we will most definitely get back to Freddie Jones later in the scene by scene, but writers of this film, Basil 
Dearden is, I guess, is how you pronounce the director's name. Is one of the writers, and then we have Michael Relf, known more as a producer, but did have screenplay credits for eight films. Henrik, the last one actually being tonight's film, and he died at 89, and just like our star of tonight. Editors, because we're so thorough in this podcast. Roger Gertin was the first assistant director. He still seems to be working in the industry as an editor every now and then. Born in 1944 already. David Gowing, second assistant director, worked on only four films before he bowed out and died at age 39. Director Basil Dearden, do you have something on this guy? Not that much. I have seen The Dead of Night, which is an anthology horror film, to which he made two sequences, if I remember correctly. Yeah, he's mostly known for, as it happens, British films, on some controversial subjects at his time, such as homosexuality. And racial tensions, like in Sapphire. Yeah, for homosexuality, please go check out Victim from 1961. For race relations, go watch Pool of London from 1951 or Sapphire 1959. Have you seen them? I might have seen the victim. Okay. I recently checked back on the plot synopsis and it did ring a bell. Once again, it is the situation where I can't be 100% certain that I've actually seen it and do not just mix it with some other film. His best known work is probably Khartoum from 1966. Dearden actually changed his name from Dear to Dearden. To avoid confusion of his name with his mentor Basil Dean. And Dear Den's films have enjoyed praise as well as scorn. Film critic David Thompson said the following quote Dear Den's films are decent, empty and plodding, and his association with Michael Relf is a fair representative of the British preference for bureaucratic cinema. It stands for the underlining of obvious meaning. End quote. Okay, but the cinematographer who actually worked with him. Douglas Slakambi enjoyed working with Dearden and said he was the most competent of the directors he worked with at the Ealing Company. So, who knows? And Basil Dearden died after a motorway accident in the M4 motorway. Yeah, the same goddamn motorway where they filmed the beginning of the film at least. For so- Someone most definitely appears not to have been taking notes of his own film. Yeah. Or did, or it's some kind of a. Well, he wanted actually people to see this film, so he gave this kind of a higher effect to sell his film. That that's dedication. Maybe we should actually try it also with this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but who will then host this podcast? Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe a doppelganger or something. <laughs> Cinematographer is Tony Spratling. Do you know him? I actually do. I've seen a bunch of films where he has been behind camera doing the cinematography. But once again, cinematographer usually is one of those professions you actually don't pay that much attention to when you are watching the film itself. Not in this case. Most definitely not, I would say. I'm sorry, but... uh, Well, Tony Spratling, best known for his work as a DOP or DP on all the 24 episodes for the Persuaders TV series, in which Moore also starred, as mentioned. But he has mainly been a camera operator. Smooth operator. He has worked on Macbeth, 
The Dirty Dozen and Alien 3, to mention a few. Also, the Sean Connery film Entrapment, with, mm. of which I usually blame for the rise in popularity of the high-class heist films that happened in the early 2000s. I guess more correct term would be robbery films, because the characters are not so much pulling off a heist, as they are pulling off an extremely elaborate robbery. I thought it was a pretty terrible film, but I did enjoy, you know, the idea. And I wish I could see more of these type of films. I think we don't it, don't have enough robbery films. You never have enough robbery films. It did have its flaws, but I found it fairly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, Catherine Zeta-Jones might have helped the situation. Oh, good. Bit. Maybe a lot, good. but... I, I, I didn't hate it. It wasn't anything special, but it in my opinion, it was better than a lot of the films that came after it. Yeah, I just feel that Sean Connery started to do a lot of C-grade or lesser value stuff artistically after, let's say, I don't know, but in, in the 90s, I'm not too interested in his contributions to everlasting cinema. Connery definitely started slumming in different films and you could almost make the argument that on the later parts of his career he was mainly doing the work simply for the paycheck and wasn't even that interested in all the films where he appeared on. Yeah. I guess if we wanna be thorough with the cast we also have to name drop Gevor Malikian, however you pronounce it, who plays Luigi in this film. One of those actors that have actually appeared in many well-known films doing smaller parts, like for example Midnight Express, or being the guy who Harrison Ford feeds to the boat propellers in the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, okay, yeah. Thought it was. And like, like, likewise also Thorley Walters, who appears also in this film, who also has a long career in British cinema and you know to drop something from him I would most definitely point out to the early film versions of The Little Drummer Girl and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Okay there you go. Thank god we have a guy who spent his teenage years watching films. Instead of doing anything that would actually be useful. (laughs) Okay so to get to the scene by scene, we start immediately with a shot of Roger Moore. And the lift, or the elevator, descends down to the ground floor. And this is a very symbolic film, Henrik. Obviously, this elevator coming down to the ground floor indicates the descendants of the character into his own personal hell, followed by the girl who is coming to the elevator next and is wearing the red shirt, and obviously that ties to the film because she is the devil, of course. You following me? This somehow sounds like you are actually trying to find something interesting out of this film. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry, and obviously I'm just fucking with you. We start with a goddamn 70s zoom out immediately. Yeah, we do. God damn it. Oh, yeah. Got all of those. And Roger Moore gets no mystical introduction. We move into his face immediately. We also get no desensitization adjustment period for his 
awful mustache. Well, actually, I I am with the film on the opening. I kind of like how film pulls off the opening and does not play that big of a notion on more or on anything else. God damn it. it Don't you want the scene it, it, where it, he draws the cigar from his box and then says, I admire your courage, Miss uh, Trench, Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr. Pelham. Harold Pelham. No, I, I I don't want that that moment, and I also don't want the moment which follows immediately after Moore gets onto his car and the soundtrack kicks in. Because God damn it, does the opening of this film suck? <laughs> but before we get to that, we have this uh, Freeman, Pelham, and Dawson Limited sign, and it says that it's related to marine engineering and something about incorporating electronic developments and navigational aids. And Roger Moore indeed gets into his hideous brown car. This film is hideously brown most of the time, Henrik. It it is. It is hideously brown and it is also hideously British throughout. And a goddamn zoom into the car when leaving the parking lot as well. Uh Uh-huh. Also, the constant staying in front of the car and keeping the same goddamn distance during the opening credits when the camera follows the car. Let me take a look at this car. Do we have this particular car shot already in this first scene? Let me see... This is extremely important. Extremely. We don't have it yet. We don't have it yet. We will get to it later. I promise. Okay. We have a funny look at Big Ben and the watch. Because that was the way to see that your watch is correct. You you just have to check out if your wristwatch is still on time. That is extremely important because it's time to introduce a meeting with his doppelganger who takes over the car with a little confusion at first, then realizes that, oh, I'm driving my wrong car today, and let's crash this fucking car. Yeah, the the opening here is kind of a, kind of baffling, because it's kind of hard to pick up what exactly is go- uh, going on during the opening minutes of the film. Because partly, what more... <laughs> appears to be, he appears to be possessed, like his doppelganger would be starting to surface here and now and would be taking control of him subconsciously. And that would be the reason why he crashes as he does. But at the, at the same time, you know, the film doesn't really prove the audience that that is what is going to happen and the film actually does nothing with the concept so that it would certify that yeah it was indeed the doppelganger in his subconscious taking control of him so it it could also be the fact that roger moore himself or most notably it kind of also at the same time tries to be the point that roger moore himself also wants to speed away on the motor highway at this point in the film yeah, it's a bit confusing, like, he is already possessed with this doppelganger, now they are one, and, okay, before this accident everything seemed to be fine, but now, is this the first time that he is introduced to the doppelganger? I, I guess this is the first time. Well, at least in, at, according to his knowledge, because throughout this film he is extremely confused that there is now a doppelganger walking around, and now they kind of separate as two beings, as we see next in the hospital bed where we have two heartbeats 
But even before that, Henrik, you know, this crashing takes a lot of time. He do, does like uh, 15 spins at least, and then finally he crashes. And on one shot, he has this sweat on his forehead, and on the next one, he doesn't. But well, okay, I'm yeah, just... well, I- I- if we are actually talking about independent cuts during the crash scene, I, on my end, I have to point out, it would be... Exactly on 6 minute and 41 second mark, at least on my copy of the film. When Moore crashes to the barricade and drives through it, there is those few shots, you know, from the side, just at the moment of the crash. And during those shots, there is this one shot that lasts like like half a second, where Roger Moore pulls the most definite, oh my lord... This is going to, you know, wrinkle my suit, dandy face, <laughs> which, <laughs> I, yeah, which really highlights the nature of this film. <laughs> he he isn't terrified. He isn't scared. He's just kind of a bummed that this happened. <laughs> okay, well, I guess you can read it like that too. Well, that that is, you know, all I get out of, you know, Mars facial expression on that one shot and to <laughs> me it kind of highlights the spirit of the film in the sense that the man who haunted himself like said previously it is extremely it is incruciatingly british movie and 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 this this british uptighty oh my god there is absolutely nothing spectacular in this situation i'm just slightly pissed at the moment, attitude, in my opinion, shows most definitely on Moore's face on the grass scene. I can actually, uh, uh, actually to highlight this, I can try to take you a, a screen cap for you about sure. the situation so that you can see it yourself exactly what I'm talking about. Please. Yeah, looks like uh, Roger Moore is having some constipation in the car, but that could happen. That could happen. Henrik, that could happen in an extreme situation like that. Yeah, well, that would be the most extreme happening in this film. <laughs> totally well. And then we move on to the next scene, where we're introduced to the wifey. Sorry, I, I hate the word wifey, but I'm just going to use it anyway. And also to the kids called Michael and James. And boredom of the character is established in the quote. Well, more or less the quote is, Didn't see any point in switching the car. Bloody good car it is. Well, it did get him out of a dangerous car crash. So in, in that sense, Moore has a point. It is a safe car. It is a safe car enough to actually withstand Moore's driving. Yeah, it bloody well is. And then we get to the office. Or it's basically like a joint meeting. It's a meeting about do we merge with electronics general or don't we? Moore points out that it's... It's not quite that simple, Charles. And he cuts the matched stick, which will tell us that now we're dealing with the doppelganger, as we will find out later in the film. But yeah, it establishes that this one is the doppelganger. And Henrik, goddamn, this room is brown and hideous. It is. It is. Once again, the 70s <laughs> hit you in the face. Yeah, dark green schools and... Dark brown offices with ghastly reds. Okay, 
But, but I actually have to propose you a question. Is this now really the doppelganger or is this the real Maul? Roger Maul. Or real Pelham, who we are actually following here. I guess they are interchangeable. Yeah, because the film, this is actually one of the things I have a problem with in this film, which is the timeline of the two Pelhams. And kind of a how hard it is to follow the two timelines, but also absolutely how bonkers the timeline appears to be. And the fact that both of these Pelhams do agree that this is some kind of a hostile takeover. They both agree to that as we go along with the film. Yeah, they do. They have, in the end, they have a different take on how to deal with the takeover. Mm -hmm. And that, I guess, is the main crux of the story in the end. Like, that is one of the extreme, this is how the two guys differ from each other moments of the film. Yeah, it's about emerging with a company, Electronics General, or as we seem to know it in the film, mostly it's EGO. Pelham suggests that EGO is only interested in the new marine automation system, which I will henceforth in this podcast call MAS, which is top secret as well. This is starting to sound like a Bond movie right here. But um, the guy that more in lack of a name, because I don't think it's mentioned, could be, but more or Pelham calls him the silly old sod in the meeting. And uh, the silly old sod thinks this, this is a very, very serious allegation. And they now plan to probe for chaps at EGO to find out more. The silly old sod now shows us for the first time an indication that Pelham just may have lost his mind. He contradicts what Pelham believes has happened. I'm not sure what, what exactly they are talking about, but it was a little bit hard to hear for me. It was the audio wasn't the best Mm-mm. throughout the film. There was some audio recording issues in the voice track I found out when I was watching the film. Yeah. For the Blu-ray version of the film, I guess it could be mentioned at this point, they stay starting titles. This had a lot of grain in them because of some chemical degradation, but they managed to go through it by frame by frame and removed all the flickering from these titles. And they did overlay the soundtrack again for this film from the original source, so it would sound better. That is up to your interpretation if you actually like the soundtrack, but... uh, they found a better source. So I'm still not sure why it's important that the future majority owner of the company would know something about the company and its projects that they just bought. How, how is that important in any way? It doesn't make business sense to then dump and kill that business you just bought at least. Or if that's not the fear of these guys, then what is it? If their MAS project is profitable, what's the problem? I, I guess what they are afraid of... Well, the first one would, would be the scenario that you also proposed, that which would make no sense, which would be merging with the company and then taking the resources under your own house and kicking the rest of the company out. Yeah. But the second fear here would be that they have a, a constant running leak 
out of their businesses to the other company and well in a long run that also could kind of cause problems for ya because of the whole corporate espionage thing. Yeah, it's only established later the actual thing that should be a little bit of a concern if indeed it is true what we find out that the first real reason to care about this is that someone is trying to sell this product to the Soviets. Yeah. But let's go for a swim, Henrik. Swimming pool time and there's a quote. We've got it. Great shot, Timothy. Uh, God, this lady actor. Uh, also a terrible line to give her too. Sorry. And then Pelham bumps into the girl and she looks at him for like 10 seconds straight. So we establish that and then we get to the vinyl song of the film. Kind of the theme of the film. It was played in the hospital, I think when Pelham was in the hospital, something. And it drove everyone mad. This tune is really sad and a bit irritating. And it so happens that Pelham then comes home and then uh, his wife is there and says that, Now there you are! And Pelham goes, Now what does that mean? It honestly sounds like the kids are dubbed by grown-up men. But that's just me. Did you get that feeling? I didn't, but I wasn't paying too much attention to the kids' voices on the scene or all together in the film. Frank is visiting, like the good gentleman uh, Pelham is. He apologizes that he forgot the meeting, even if in his mind he thinks he knows he never invited him in the first place. And then Frank suggests that Pelham did something funny. In the past, played snooker at the club and had some fun time with the lady. And focus is given to Pelham's tie. We don't know why, but we are given it and we will figure it out later. And there is some fighting with the shirt that he puts on. Helped by, of course, his wife, Eve. And says something like, I want a bloody pin stuck in my neck. And then, now look, darling. He said I invited him last Thursday at the club, right? Now just ask yourself, where was I last Thursday? And at this moment we have some sloppy audio editing, Henrik. At the moment when he says last, it is cut at that moment. Sorry, but I notice everything. But it was the 70s, so who cares? Nobody notices things in the 70s. It's uh, bedtime for the kids. Daddy, daddy, what lies in the bottom of the sea? A nervous wreck. <laughs> Alex calls and it's a crisis meeting time. Headlight tilt is very important in the films of 60s and 70s. You bloody goddamn have to... This is what I was mentioning in the earlier scene that we still didn't have it. But now we do have it, Henrik. We have the goddamn tilt to the headlight because headlight is very important. You have to tilt into the headlight. Well, you, yeah, you have to showcase the audiences that the cars actually do have headlights mm-hmm. because it is the 70s. <laughs> you know, it, it is high tech these days to have a headlight in your car. Then we have the crisis meeting. Ashton from EGO has convinced Alex that they know of the secret marine automation system or MAS. So they suspect there has been a leak. And uh, there is this very prescient quote from Bellum. Espionage isn't all James Bond and her Majesty's Secret Service. Industry goes in for it too, you know. So kind of a deprecating 
but a prescient quote. Kind of funny to find it here. It is. It is. It is one of the funny moments in the, in the film. <laughs> I must give it that much. Even though I guess it was completely unintentional. Hmm. But still, still it works. It works in this film. Yeah, although it is my understanding that Roger Moore was asked to play in 1969's On Her Majesty's Secret Service after Sean Connery departed and also asked for Diamonds Are Forever in 1971. But he was unable to join because his commitments to wonderful TV series. Mission is now then to find out the source of the leak to find out the extent of it and plug it, as it's put. Alex also suggests that Ashton from EGO could be bluffing. Well, there's that. And there is a large tender that has been uh, played out. I'm not sure what Alex is saying here, but their bid is to supply the Soviet shipping industry with monetary components. And the point, then according to Pelham, is that the MAS will be the clincher. For this deal. And now they have to find out who is the leak. Dun, dun, and then we get back to Pelham's home. And the wifey says that, you know, I read it's the sign of middle age when a man starts switching off lights. I thought that was kind of cutesy. So also, I suppose Pelham is supposed to be an Italian guy here. Or have I lost my bearings here so because he says that look if i can't chuck some spaghetti down on a bloody sink in my own house how am i going to emigrate like the most unconvincing italian guy ever there is that roger moore acting his best performance may i point out all you need is a hideous mustache well he he didn't have a hideous mustache in bond films and it was completely different character yeah he wasn't italian I think. Yep. The doppelganger, I think, leaves the house premises here. The, as I have pointed out, dull version of Pelham, in quotation marks, appears so fast in the bedroom that it suggests that Pelham actually has been split into two characters in real life. This is further shown in the ending, to which we get later. And there is a bit of a family crisis, Henrik. You'd like another baby, wouldn't you? Yes. I thought you were worried about your figure. Oh. So, this will be kind of a big deal for Eve. Eve also shows worry of his husband, because he seems to be losing his mind. Then Pelham tells to EGO that they don't accept their offer. CEO of EGO asks on what basis the tender to the Russians has been computed is that the word he uses with or without their new process and the hench guy answers with and ceo says we've got to have it and this happens after the phone call where felam informs them that they are not interested in their slimy little deal but then just like minutes after there's a scene where felam says that oh he took it quite well offered to improve the terms so I'm not sure, like, he took it quite well, he offered to improve the terms, so he has already at this point informed his comrades that the terms have been kind of improved, so, and it's all thanks to him, so, but later on this is a huge deal, Henrik. It is, yep. 
and bam. It, it's, <laughs> it, it comes to the point where everybody is happy that the terms have been improved, and well, to spoil the ending to everyone already at this point. My basically, everyone in either corporation agrees with the merger in the end. And you can't forget the notion that they all have been on board with the merger and are happy that it's going through. And, well, now they are doubly happy because, well, they get more money in the merger. But the major crux, the film's major conflict, is the fact that some in the corporation feel that the way how Pelham dealt with the situation to get more money for them was too cynical and too much, you know, doing whatever it takes to get results. Yeah, he can't decide. Well, Pelham asks Alex if he has been acting strange lately, finally, and asks about the Thursday snooker claims and says he's not good at snooker anyway, but then goes to the snooker hall to find out more. There's a doppelganger game flashback, because a guy at the snooker hall tells the whole story, and uh, in the present day a guy gives his debt back for the game that he bet on, or something. And Pelham returns home, Henrik. Once again, he does that God a lot damn. in this film. And the, his office and his meeting room. And, yep, there is the focus on the tie again. And uh, he tells Eve that it was confirmed that he played snooker. Eve says it's preposterous that grown-up men play such games on him. And that would be really right, but in fact there is a doppelganger on the streets. And Pelham then visits with Alex a research development center of their own company. Again, in Pelham's case, they go over the details of the secret experiment project... I believe they are referring to the MAS. And they're dis- yeah, that was my take also. Yeah, and they discuss it with the project leader. He says he told all of this already to Pelham like 10 days ago. So his doppelganger has been collecting some information. Sneaky bastard. But fear not, our listeners, then it's a dinner with Eve. Eve tells that there should be something to hold the marriage together. Apparently the best course of action, of course, is... Having a baby. A third child. God <laughs> damn it. Because, because that is how you save your marriage. Mm-hmm. Have a kid. Mm-hmm. Eve wants to do something reckless as well. You know, because you can have something stabilizing like a kid and then you can play poker or whatever. Anything to not make them so bloody dreary and suburban. And Eve plays the game. Doppelganger's love interest is at the table. Confused looks are shared. And after the game, Frank points out that it has been two nights in a row that Mr. Pelham has been at the premises. And Eve just shrugs it off as complete bullshit and stop playing games, you 14-year-old kid. And then there is the awkward conversation with the doppelganger love interest. Did you catch her name, actually? Julie? Sounds cute. Let's see. Olga Georgie's Picot playing Julie. Absolutely. And which is followed by the angry fight at home because it looks like Mr. Pelham is not exactly what he seems to be. Not so boring after all. He actually does stuff. Yeah. Who would have thought? 
chasing chicks left and right at the casino. Then we get to the barber shop, and we have the best quote of this film. Morning, Philip. Good morning, Mr. Perlham. You gonna be long? How do you mean, sir? Before you can do me. Do you, sir? My hair. And uh, he points out that I, uh, I must have forgotten that I was here just a moment ago. And this is one of like uh, 45 references to point out that, yeah, there is a doppelganger on the loose. Like, we definitely needed this scene. But goddamn, it was worth of this quote. Yeah, it's the, it is the curious case where the film... And I, I do understand extremely well why they are actually doing this in the film, but... Well, they, they are trying to keep up the mystery on whatever... Is there a doppelganger or is Pelham simply losing his mind? Or is everybody playing a trick on him? Like, keep the audiences on their toes. What is the final truth in the situation? But God damn it, God does damn it. the film fumble on, you know, this attempt of keeping the mystery shrouded? Yeah, at least on the first watch. Not so much on the second, but definitely on the first watch. I was like, okay, okay, we get it. Can we get this story moving forwards? But it takes its goddamn time. It does, it does. And that actually was one of the main problems I had with the film. The other problem I have with the film trying to keep up the mystery is that, well, right immediately after the barber scene, there comes the club scene when when Bellum returns to the gentleman's club. And, okay, fine, I can give the film that much that up until this point, they have kind of been able to keep the mystery shrouded. Is there a doppelganger or is there not? But from the get-go, the film has been playing the timeline of where the two different Pelhams appear and when. And the film has played that timeline extremely tight. To a point where it is matter of over two minutes or 30 seconds that the doppelganger Pelham has left the premises and moved somewhere else before the real Pelham actually shows up, and this is why they don't actually meet face to face. And it is, in my opinion, it is highlighted now in this club scene, where, once again, the timeline is a matter of two minutes. Like, Pelham goes to a room in the club, only to hear that his doppelganger has miraculously just left the room and went to another room. Pelham races to another room. Well, your doppelganger just left here 30 seconds ago. And Pelham races to third room. And once again, you know, mysteriously the doppelganger has managed to sneak off. And it is... At, at this, this point, the timeline is so goddamn tight that you already figure out that there is a doppelganger in play. But at the same time, you know, the doppelganger moves so goddamn fast from one place to another that it also becomes extremely bizarre. The film loses its mystery. It kind of points out to you what the endgame is. It points out to you that there really is a doppelganger by playing the timeline so close. But at the same time, you know, the timeline doesn't make sense even with the doppelganger. I think you cannot say that. I think it's just a little funny coincidence that he is able to get off so easily from location A to B to C to X and avoid this original, let's say, Pelham in these situations. And moreover, I do not share your view that 
it's clear that there's a doppelganger at this moment because it could be that he's just running around and just changing his, you know, personality every 30 seconds and that this would allow but, for this happen. But he does not have time for that. Basically, the other characters in the film confirm it by the fact that they can confirm that, well, they have been reacting with Pelham just, you know, 30 seconds to two minutes ago. So what? But he could just so go you, you behind the, the door and Pelham then... And you, see, you see where he is actually during that, that moment. I mean, you know, the, the moment you actually follow the timeline of the real Pelham, you actually do figure out that the other characters reacting to, to Pelham as yeah. they state. Yeah, but it, it 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 requires the double gang. It does not, Henrik. It does. It, it does. You you you, you no, can't. No, no. It does. It no. does. No. You you follow Pelham to barber shop and from the barber shop to the gentleman's club. Just like the snooker scene or the pool scene, we do not see it in the film. In real time, Henrik, we see it as a flashback. And in the same vein, you could see the snooker scene later on when he goes there and he's confused that he has been there already, but he doesn't have any recollection of that. So he could have like a 30 second memory, could have been there. We just don't see it in the film. Yeah, you you can play that trick with the snooker scene, but you can't play that trick with, the, for example, with the servant at the gentleman's club who is trying to give Pelham back his hat and his cane. While you also extremely well see that the real Pelham is holding his hat and his cane, mm. and the servant points out that you know he has just met the other Pelham. It, it's like it, it is the reaction with the other characters. That at least for me, it completely blew the mystery and it underlined and highlighted me the fact that there are, must be two Pelhams at play. Once again, one Pelham can't be having two hats and two canes. You can't. Who knows? Pelham is too uptight and too strict to wear a hat with a hat. Well, god damn it. But then we go to the office and then to the jewelry store. He asks Miss Bird, the assistant, if he has behaved weirdly lately, and apparently not. And Pelham gets the thanks for the memory paper with the necklace that has been sent back, which was meant for the doubleganger. And he goes to the jewelry store and says to this jewelry store guy, Oh, perhaps you could tell me whom you've sent it to. I've forgotten which particular lady. Oh, really, sir? That was a good quote. And we get to the office again. Pelham is now accused by one person of misleading his team that there would be no leak at all. Funny how both the doppelganger and the kind of boring or real Pelham seem to agree that there has been a leak, as mentioned. Like, remember it was the doppelganger that gave the idea of a leak or of a takeover, but uh, they do seem to agree on that point. And then there is discussion about misleading with Ashton. Pelham has no recollection of the three previous discussions, or three or four, or however it is. There's the discussion where, for security reasons, sh should they have their first meeting. There's the flashback of the clock tower, 
doppelganger explains he can up the ante in production in their work or something and then there's the flashback of the London planetarium meeting where doppelganger wants to be managing director of EGO and give some share benefits for Ashton or the company and then flashback of the boat meeting talking about shares once again and Pelham says he will shoe for defamation Henrik of character if he says one syllable one syllable of such accusations so there they differ and this requires another goddamn meeting in the brown office Ugh. it's said that Ashton has phoned Pelham himself immediately after his meeting with Pelham and Alex is suggesting that Pelham has been playing a double game Ashton said categorically that Pelham had been in negotiations with Pelham and they also contemplate if Ashton has made it up or has seen someone who is the so-called spitting image of Pelham but they kind of discard that quickly as a possibility and just blame Pelham and Pelham back at his office asks secretary to call his home assistant at home says he can give Mr. Pelham Mr. Pelham if he wishes to speak to Mr. Pelham that, that is a lot of Pelham <laughs> and drives furiously home and finally we have all been waiting for assistant Luigi well assistant Luigi was about to get Pelham to the phone but apparently he went out just a short time ago necklace is gone color is at home at least and then calls Alex to his home to play detective about the caller because yeah why not talk to the officials at this point but yeah they talk about seeing a doctor Roger Moore I mean Pelham takes the offer and then we get to the doctor oh boy (laughs) terrible acting from the doctor terrible extremely terrible acting terrible like but basically, like it was said previously, Freddie Jones, bless his heart, has gained a lot of criticism for playing a caricature. And holy shit does he do that in here. Mm-hmm. It sounds exactly like that, that everything has been like, he has pre-learned every goddamn dialogue and it just comes from there, from like pharmacy's desk immediately. It does, and also, you know, the whole the whole appearance, the, all the mannerisms that the shrink has in this film, they are kind of like like a goofy caricature of a shrink, mm. to a point where the dude wears goddamn sunglasses indoors, mm. simply because psychics or something like that. Something like that, and Pelham could be suffering from a psychosis of doubles, according to this doctor and says that it could be important that he hasn't seen his double and not to not not to forget that the reason the reason why Pelham could be suffering from psychosis is well his strict habits and also the lack of sexual life because of course of course yeah I paid attention to this too it is basically every shrink cliche that has been put off in a movie in movies all all taken together and crammed up into one character. Not only that, this shrink asks for him to change his clothes because 
you know, to change the appearance to not be boring. And yeah, you know, to break the cycle. Mm. And invite Spellham to some tests. Spellham says that he has to think about it and try to figure this out first by himself, which doesn't really work that well, as we will see later. But uh, at home, wifey comes back. Luigi informs Madame that Pelham will not be back until 8. Wifey is not too happy about that. As it so happens, of course, that Roger Moore is having some time at the girl's house. And the doppelganger cuts the matchstick once again, drives to the girl, confirms that he was there just a moment ago, and she finally believes that Pelham doesn't remember anything and doesn't remember ever being there with the girl and calls the doctor. And, uh, well, we have to get to the crappy acting doctor back and the doctor gives a dose and apparently after the dose he will somehow know more about Pelham that Pelham knows about Pelham. And at this moment the doppelganger takes all opportunity of this moment, of this moment, and frightens the wife, first of all and takes control of the office, tries to be flirty with Miss Bird, something like, quote, So, if you bring him the correspondence, Miss Bird, I'll have time to deal with it before the meeting. Whilst you make me a cup of delicious coffee. Because that is what you do when you are the evil doppelganger. You drink coffee instead of tea. The horror and the terror. (laughs) And here we get to the point... Why is this doppelganger supposed to be so terrifying? Or is he, Henrik, he is not the evil character or evil doppelganger or evil part of Balaam in this film? He is actually the better version of Balaam. Well, the film at the same time tries to play him as the evil character. But he isn't. Well... The film tries to tell you that he is, even though he actually does jack shit throughout the film. Except, you know, have an affair with the photographer lady, which might still not be cheating. Technically, maybe, since it's kind of hard to say who is and whose wife. I would say, Henrik, that this film is making the point that the so-called doppelganger is actually... The improved, the enhanced, the evolved version of Pelham. And the so-called original Pelham is the ghost from the past who just can't let the past go. And he should not exist anymore because this new doppelganger or the actual Pelham who survived the operation is the Pelham. And he has moved on. And he is the better Pelham because he has... Moved on and he is able to please his wife and does all the right moves. And there's actually nothing in this film that would suggest that he's doing something that is bad. Well, there kind of is. Still, the the first point is that... Well, yeah, well, sex with the lady is one. The, the sex with the lady, the fact that during the final moments of the film, Pelham's boss expresses his disdain towards how the evil doppelganger does business and makes a point that he does not approve the doppelganger's methods which he in a way 
see cynical and therefore quote unquote evil. He 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 does not look well at what the double gunner has done with the merger. And du- during the final car chase scene, there there is the constant cutting back to the laughing face of the double ganger, the close-ups of double ganger's predatory gaze, and you know these these visual tricks, which in my opinion it is very much the film telling you. That yes, the doppelganger is evil. Well, if you really look at the film, Henrik, you can see that the only reason that you could say that there is something nefarious or evil about the doppelganger is the fact that he is having some extramarital affairs and, uh, well, he has some unorthodox methods of getting a deal through, but that is really just financial benefit for the company at the end of the day. It is, it is, it is, it is. But there is also the point that, well, the evil doppelganger is ready to, in the end, cause the death of another person, that being the original Pelham, in order to maintain his position as the one and true Pelham, kicking the original out of the life he has had. That is kind of a dickish move to pull off, but also the fact that, well, during the final sequence of the film, the way how the film tells you this visually, The film makes the point that the doppelganger knowingly causes the crash, the second crash of the film, which then somehow erases the dull Pelham from the existence. So it is kind of an act of murder. Yeah, so it is, and... Going chronologically, now we have the meeting of Doppelganger. The Doppelganger doesn't deny Alex's allegations at the meeting at all. He defends himself by saying that if he had not gone behind their backs, they would have had closed negotiations with ridiculously low figures. And he nearly doubled the money. So there's that. But, 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 by disclosing the most private information. But that's what the EGO is paying for and... Really, it doesn't matter, at least at this point. If he had not gone ahead on his own, the first prize would have been accepted. And the CEO, which I believe is the CEO, says he doesn't recognize the man sitting in front of him in the other end of the table. But um, yeah, is there anything evil about the doppelganger except the extramarital adventures? He seems to be a bloody good chap indeed. Well, there, there is still, you know, one case of murder. Murder being relatively evil in our modern society. Mm-hmm. Or murder and murder in quotation marks, since it's kind of a form of a erasing, I guess, because it, yeah. you never actually figure out what the fuck happens to the original Pelham at the end of the film. He he kind of vanishes. And the doppelganger has a heart problems for 15 seconds or something. Yeah, you know, I took it in a sense perfectly that uh, the real Pelham is the so-called doppelganger. And in order to get rid of his past, there has to be some magical shit and they have to meet. And everybody is able to see both of these characters for some reason. So... It seems to suggest, Henrik, very much that these are both very much physical characters. However, as you mentioned, he just magically disappears in the car when he's flying to the river. So... Yeah. Uh... The, the, the ending altogether, 
the entire ending of the film is really baffling. Like, there is a bunch of shit that just kind of don't make any kind of a sense. Yeah, when I watched this for the first time, Henrik, I felt that this is the kind of film that doesn't even want to make sense, doesn't plan on to making sense, and doesn't even have any anything deeper inside of it to make sense with deeper analysis. It just doesn't make any fucking sense. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm with you partly there. I must admit, I neither found any deeper meaning from the film. But I got the feeling that it tried to make sense. It tried to be a thriller or a horror film or some kind of an exciting mystery. Something to keep you on the edge of your seat. Mm. And it wasn't confusing on a purpose. It simply tried to be a nerve-wracking, very simple story which they just didn't manage to tell you in a way that would make sense in the end. Well, in any case, you have a pretty simple plot and then you try to drag it on to like a one and a half hour movie, right? And I think there is just not enough material even in this adaptation to drag it on like this without any kind of a consequences. It drags on too much and everybody knows it. Yeah, and in the end the film even doesn't know how to close itself. Perhaps. Which leads into a bunch of problems in the final moments. Perhaps, or this is the work of a mastermind who really wanted it to be it's this way and really not, wants you not, to. It's not. This is, this is this is not an underrated hidden gem of a film in any way or form. Hmm. Well, Henrik, um, there is this interesting quote that kind of gives it plain as day to you that the doppelganger indeed has known all along that there is the other copy of him and says, Don't you see? I am you. You died on that operating table. For a few moments you actually died. That let me out. Unfortunately, you came to life again. So now there are two of us. Don't go on, you know. One of us will have to go. And... Yeah, the original drives to his death. Yeah, Did you... by the magic of teleporting car from the double gang. Did you notice the eyebrow right before they start the car chase? I didn't. I didn't. Where's the eyebrow? The doppelganger makes the eyebrow right before he gets to his car to chase the original Bellum. I missed the eyebrow. God damn it. <laughs> I, 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 I was so bafflingly infuriated by the ending at that point that I, I started to miss these little details. Do you want to read anything on the fact that in the car reflection in the mirror you have the kids, you have the wife Eve, you have the doppelganger laughing like a maniac, and then Pelham's eye is intercut with the bloody moon and snooker ball, no less, and drives off the bridge. Would this give us a hint what the fake is going on here? My best guess is that that would be... Pelham going through exactly how totally the doppelganger has taken over his life. Mm. Also kind of realizing that the doppelganger is making better use of his life than he has. Since he has gotten so close to the kids and the wife that 
they no longer recognize the Pelham, the original Pelham, and the doppelganger also has some mad snooker skills. That's right, Henrik, and well, that was the man who haunted himself very much, and uh, further reading, if you want to read the book, then read the original book, which we were not able to do, and would it be quick categories? I guess fine by me. Yeah, Roger, Roger. Favorite performance? Well, <laughs> it goes to Roger more. You know, mm, yeah, it does. I, I, I may, may have given the dude a lot of shit during this episode. Also, for, you know, his part in the film we are talking about, but <sighs> despite all of that, despite all the negative things I've said, the man does act in this film. He goes through motions. I didn't buy all of those. No. Yeah, but, you know, he tries. And... He does achieve the goal every now and then, so yeah, Roger Moore. Yeah, I would say that he kind of overreacts on some points, especially in the opening car crash scene, but then again he is kind of under some spell or what looks like that. But sometimes I just was a little bit disillusioned. Could be, of course, because most of the time you see Roger Moore, he is kind of very caricature-like, just cracking jokes. He's basically being himself, and here he is not, so you pay that extra attention if he is actually pulling a good performance. So would it be that we are being too harsh on Roger Moore because we are paying this extra attention? I guess partly, yeah. We also may be too hard on Moore here simply because he frontlines the film. And we have some very large problems with the film in question. Mm. But, you you know, to, to give credit to more, to be fair here. For example, in the last chase scene, the closing scene of the film, which I still don't like. I do confess that more does play the two palms very well. And he does very clearly show you that the... These two Pelhams are very different characters. Yep, that he does. Where I would say that the doppelganger character is very much the Roger Moore that we have been grown to be used to watching on the silver screen. He is, and the other Roger Moore is very much in anguish. You can actually see desperation and turmoil on his face. Mm-hmm. So, you know... Good job, Roger Moore. I tip my hat to that. Favorite scene? I, I guess on my end, even though I do have problems with this scene, it is the, the scene when Bellum goes to the gentleman's club and there is the whole handing him his hat and cane while he himself also has a hat and cane. I did have a lot of problems with the scene, and to me that was the scene which kind of caused me the mystery element of the film. It made me extremely clear that there is a doppelganger at play, and it's not just Pelham losing his mind. But, in a way, even though the scene is batshit bonkers in many ways when it comes to the timeline of the two Pelhams going around the club, I think the tension kind of peaks at that moment. Somehow. 
the attention kind of a peaks at that moment when we have the scene that we have waiting for the entire film, which is the moment where the doppelgangers finally meet, which was in my world at least kind of a surprise still because I had a different reading and a different expectation that okay it's going to be sneaky it's going to be like that he is the only Pelham that but you just think that there are two but there actually is two Pelhams and that final moment when they meet is my favorite scene favorite quote I will take corporate espionage isn't all about her majesty's secret service I will go with the Morning, Philip. Good morning, Pelham. You're gonna be long. How do you mean, sir? Before you can do me, do you, sir? My hair. Because I lack sense of humor. A favorite kill. I guess that would be... At least for me, it would be killing Mr. Pelham at the end of the film. I hope you have another pick. Yeah. It's the kill of the... Film. Third baby of Eve Pelham. <laughs> Fuck. I I think, you know, uh, the favorite kill category is really hurting us well, in this podcast. I'm I'm sure that the doppelganger got got the baby on the way. So, I guess I'll just go with the so-called original Pelham. Random confusing question for the evening would be, uh, Henrik, have you ever drank the water from the river? I have. How was it? It was okay. It was fine. I know that it is It is supposed to be a major health hazard to do it without actually processing the water first, boiling it down or using ionine peels. Mm-hmm. Fuck that noise. You know, I live with the danger. On the edge. And there was no side effect at all. My co-host is on the edge and first image that comes to mind. I guess it is. The boring Pelham's anguished face when he's actually driving away from his double. The final chase scene. Especially, you know, that moment when the green light is prominent in the screen and Pelham's face is kind of shrouded in this green light. I kind of like the cinematography right there, but I would still go with, well, obviously with the first image that comes to mind, so that would be in the starting scene when more is about to crash, and just the last facial expression before he actually crashes. I enjoy that. I enjoy that. Which image best exemplifies this one? I really don't know, actually. Well, in this case, I would actually go with the green light and the old night sitting when he's on his last car trip. No, that's that's actually that's way too exciting. <laughs> I I, I, I I must go with, in, with, with you know, the, the picture I sent you. <laughs> Roger Moore's Oh My Lord face. Okay, if we go with that, then in that case, what truly exemplifies this as far as the running time goes and what happens for the majority of the running time, I would say is best symbolized by the brown office where they have their meetings. <sighs> Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Henrik, what took you out of the, the man who hoarded himself? The boredom. <laughs> that that took me out of the film. <laughs> yeah, it took me out when... At least at, around somewhere, probably, when he for the first time visits the extramarital girl and 
then it kind of starts to be a snooze fest. Like, oh, all right, we get it, we get it, we get it. There is something doubly double kangaroo going on, and it just keeps on repeating and on and on and on and on and on these same points. It does, it does, it does that with so many characters and with so many scenes. Yeah. It's ba- basically, from a huge part of its running time, the movie is simply Pelham going to meet some character that makes the notion that I, I just met you, or you said this thing, or we have had this meeting, or you have been in this place, and Pelham being, but, 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 but it can't be. Yeah, uh, or getting a random phone call and then getting triggered to the next quest to get inside his house or some club or whatever the case might be. Yeah, it, it is. It, this is going to your home, going to your office, the movie. What pulled you in then? I, I guess it would once again be the club scene. Mm. Simply because, and I don't know why... But for me, the tension somehow managed to peak at least a bit when he's running around the club and trying to find his double. I'm not a big fan of snooker, so I would just go with the ending scene once again when we finally get some answers or like the next level of what is going on. We could have spent even more time at this point, but the movie refuses to do that. Henrik, strongest act, one, two, three. Maybe the third one. Yeah, that's the one. Best scene is there. And what was the most exciting moment, and that would be the snooker, I guess. Yeah, once again. Mm. In this film, in this episode, a hell of a lot of quickies actually get piled up on one scene. At least for me. Same here. But in this case, it will be the meeting of Doppelganger and the original. We are actually repeating ourselves exactly as much as this movie repeats itself. Fitting. Sisters of Sacrilege, what would you change in the film? I would actually put some goddamn tension in the film. I would make the doppelganger actually do some shit throughout, you know, the hour and 40 minutes that it takes. Yeah, more confrontation is needed there, or confrontation at all. Or you could bring them even closer to each other in the like the first act of the film. Something to get the hell moving on with this thing. Yeah, I mean, like I said, and I'm once once again, I'm repeating myself in a movie that repeats itself. Good. But th- this is, I, I get the feeling that this is extremely British film. Extremely British thriller movie and not in the good sense. Like, like... The film's poster, for fuck's sake, has the tagline of Stalked by fear and terror, night and day. Giving you the fucking implication that that this is a thriller film. And the film's title is Man Who Haunted Himself. Hmm. Emphasis on haunted. Once again implying that there is some excitement in the film. And, like I said, the doppelganger... The changeling storyline is not that new in the world of cinema. We have had these stories beforehand. The doppelganger typically is the evil guy of the film. I also would still make the statement that even this film tries to make that point by having some characters being profoundly disappointed on the doppelganger and his actions. Hmm. 
And your typical movie, which has this doppelganger, it, it has the moments where, or it, it drives to the point that the doppelganger is aggressive or violent, or he has murderous tendencies. Like, he is a threat to the main character, he is a threat to the main character's close ones, and in a way, yeah, he is still that also in this film, but the doppelganger also is the most boring sort there can be. Like, this is the film where the evil doppelganger goes to the office from 8 to 4 and goes to your home, is the family man, has the corporate meetings. I mean, it, it's kind of a, like, this is a British nightmare. <laughs> like, like, if you can't stop the dastardly bastard, what will he do next? Most likely fill your fucking taxes. <laughs> God damn it. Once again, I would say that maybe in the 70s, this was still a new concept that you have doppelgangers, or am I... It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was, it, it was, you know, it was tired storyline even in 70s. God damn it, okay. This, 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 this stuff has existed from the 20s. But there is nothing really nefarious about this doppelganger, as you said, he doesn't even kill anyone. The original one kills himself, for God's sakes. So th well, the doppelganger does teleport in front of the original score and drives towards it. How do you kind of a forcing? How do you reckon that it's uh, him in in the car? I thought it was just some random car. Well, I I, I took it that it is the same car, or it, it is the doppelganger, since it, the car is similar, and there are the close-ups on the doppelganger's face. Mm. As the collision kind of nearers. Yeah, but I thought that I, I'm pretty sure the goddamn car was completely different to the fancy car that he is driving. Well, w w once again, th there is the fact that, well, it hasn't been shot maybe the best way. So it, it doesn't give you the clearest image of what type of car it is. But yeah, my take is that it is the doppelganger's car. He somehow has managed to teleport in front of the boring Pelham and now is speeding towards him, forcing him to drive off the bridge. I'm not even going to give a reading on that scene then. Or go ahead if you have an idea what is going on. To me, like, like I said, to me it is the doppelganger causing an accident that kills the boring Pelham. By teleporting. By teleporting. Okay. Like I said, the fucking ending makes no goddamn sense. It also doesn't make sense when the boring Pelham comes to his house and the doppelganger is already there and all the other characters see that there are two Pelhams. They have been laughing and denying the concept of the doppelganger up until this point. Now they see that there most definitely are two Pelhams and everybody now all of a sudden is is okay with the concept, they just accept it. Like, hmm. of, of course, you know, this is the man who has been trying to act like Pelham, like, has been claimed previously in this film, and we have denied the possibility of a, such of a ludicrous situation. But now that we see it, well, of course it is, and there's nothing fucking special in the moment. And the fact that actually the kids and the wife and Alex and everyone kind of doesn't even acknowledge that he looks exactly like Pelham, except different kind of clothes. Even the kids are like, who is this scary man? Please make him go away. Yeah. And uh, Yeah. 
and, and and the wife isn't now questioning which Pelham actually has had the affair. Mm-hmm. And, and then the point that, you know, at this point, what would be the best situation or what, what you should most definitely do is to get the cops involved. Oh, get them yeah. to premises to actually make something out of the situation, to clarify the situation. Have the system take part. Finally. And the doppelganger actually agrees to be the one who calls the cops. So uh, the boring Pelham could just stay in the house, have a sit down with the doppelganger and wait until the cops get into the house and then try to deal with the situation. But instead, the boring Pelham runs out of the house to get the cops himself. Well, it's just a heat of the situation moment where he was trying to be the real Pelham and he will do it and you do not even exist. So let's go drive some car to the river. But yeah, you know, I think this is a growing up story, Henrik. In a way that the doppelganger is the actual Pelham, but he has just some disgusting or questionable sides to him where he has extramarital sex with a young lady and tries to kill himself once in a while. Otherwise, but otherwise he has evolved in, in the sense that he can make good business deals, albeit questionable. But then again, you know, it is precisely the doppelganger who has the affair. Yeah, yeah. I mean that so, that's so the questionable he's, he's part. The, he's, yeah. Yeah. He is he is the he is not perfect by any means. <clears throat> and neither is this film. <laughs> and that being out of the way, you really know you're watching the man who haunted himself when I I honest to God don't know when you <laughs> actually really know you are watching the man who haunted himself. Because nothing in this film in the end strike me that special well i would say that you really know you're watching the man who wanted himself when you see a doppelganger that is imposing not big of a risk for the main character i i would actually now that you mention it i i would go with the same note yeah like you know that you are watching the man who wanted himself when the evil dastardly doppelganger goes to the office and does your work for you imagine if the original pelham would have just being like, okay, I'm just going to the police. Something is not quite matching up because I know that I didn't make those arrangements or these meetings or this whatever. And now he goes to the police and the police comes into the matter and uh, all they have to deal with is uh, this uh, doppelganger who actually has just impersonated the real Delam and has tried to ruin his marriage and reputation by having sex with a random girl. Actually, something that could have been more interesting movie would have been if the if the film would have followed how the family deals with the fact that there is a doppelganger. Like, like how how does the fa- wife deal with the fact that he now technically has two husbands and the kids have two fathers? It's and how they reconcile with the fact that only one Pelham can be at the office and they both wanna be at the office doing the work. Do they make timetables? Do they agree on dates? Like Mondays and Wednesdays? The doppelganger is in the office? There would be no conflict, Henrik, because the original Pelham has already changed his clothes, his ties and his suit, which means that he is completely unable to see that he is the original Pelham. So no no conflict. Yeah, he has become a completely different person now. Yep. Yeah, he has a pink shirt. (laughs) 
three adjectives to describe the film. I go with British brown and slow. <laughs> well, brown and slow are a must and just absurd. It is, it is. Absurd also fits this film. And not in a good way. That said, did you look at your watch during the film? I looked at it first time at the halfway point of the film. Oh dear. I did try to, you know, resist the temptation up until that point, but somewhere around the 40 minute mark, it, it just got too much. I started to see how much this is going to last. And from there on, every now and then I was checking on, you know, how much I still have going on. Yup, happened to me as well. I couldn't resist. Too repetitive, too repetitive. Sorry, that's commitment. Would you recommend this film, Henrik? The man who haunted himself. I, I am kind of tempted to give a recommendation to this one, based on the fact that this is supposed to be, you know, the best Roger Moore you can get. And this, uh, this is the bridge doing a thriller, and you can really see where the hell that one takes you. I'm I'm kind of tempted to give give this one a recommendation so that you can watch Roger Moore your first time in your life and then make the decision. Do you really want to sit through the Roger Moore Bond films because they suck ass? Also, ouch. Kinda. Some of them less than others, but but there is some real turkeys turkeys in in that direction. Granted. Yep. But no, I I can't, you know, put our listeners through this one by giving this one a recommendation, so skip it. And would I recommend this film? I would. You not. sick bastard. Is, is this Gary or the evil doppelganger? We may never know. <laughs> I said I would not. <laughs> okay, I misheard you completely. <laughs> I... I gave you the cliffhanger there. No, I would not. It's just, it's just, it just keeps on dragging on too much. And even though if this would have been acceptable in the 70s, I think the film is too goddamn brown. And I think still the acting, apart from more, more Roger Moore does a pretty good job still, but everything else is kind of lackluster. Yeah, well, Freddie Jones is is a fun to see in an absurd way, where he's pulling a complete caricature. To me it... Which does not actually fit the film in any way, because the film still tries to be serious, for some odd reason. I kind of felt bad for Moore in some scenes, because it seems that Moore is trying to give his all to this scene, and at the same time you had this child actors and the girl interest of doppelganger, and these are all, all yeah. terrible actors, and, and then, then you have the psychiatrist, and I just cannot pull myself to like any of these characters, because yeah. they are so wooden as hell. Roger Moore, bless his heart, he tries so hard. And for this film, I I, I feel bad for the guy also. Henrik, did you, did you not like Roger Moore's performance here? I, I thought it was okay. Mm, mm. I felt that too. It was okay. Yeah, I... There are moments, there are moments in this film where he actually does give very good performance. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but that is kind of contradicted by 
the moments where his character isn't being given that much to do acting-wise. <clears throat> like where you just have to be the boring businessman. <clears throat> this kind of a laid-back corporate middle executive who takes part on board meetings. You, you can't save those scenes, no matter what you do. And at times more kind of a fumble of it. Yeah, it wasn't exactly the shining performance that I wanted, but I wasn't expecting like an incredible performance to begin with. I, I kind of was because this was supposed to be, you know, more on his best acting. Hmm. And I, I was... Granted, that kind of uh, colored my expectations with this film, because I came to this film, you know, expecting to see the lacking of everything that I have hated in some of Moore's portrayals of, for example, Bond. Mm. And I, I, I was, you know, I was expecting really diamondy performance here, and I didn't get that. I got pieces of it, but not the diamond. Yeah, well, to be clear, you get a completely different Roger Moore than, than you get in the Bond films. So you get most definitely different facial expressions, actual anxiety, stress and anger, which you never see in the James Bond films as far as I... That, that, is, that is true, that is true. Yeah, so I, w I was pleased to see this kind of a different side to him, definitely. Henrik, two years ago I was just watching some French flick in a Polish theater in the city of Białystok. I exited this theater and uh, then I went to Ula's webpage and I got the information that Roger Moore has indeed died. And I have kind of, I have a long experience of Roger Moore because I think I was five when I saw my first Bond films, which included Roger Moore as well. And I don't know... I really like his character. This, as mentioned many times, this self-deprecating humor, this guy who doesn't take his himself too seriously, who is still extremely polite and, you know, very English and... Um, extremely bored when he signs a little boy's book. <laughs> <laughs> that that could be. That, that was kind of a bummer. That, that kind of a changed view of Roger Moore, but... Uh, I, th I, I, I hope, I think that most of the time Roger Moore is indeed the Roger Moore that we care and love. And I did shed a tear. <laughs> I did. I just, I was in a, like a coma outside of the theater for like one hour. I, I was confused. Like, he has been a big part of my life, I have to say. And I, I think there are a lot of, there are some good life lessons that could be learned from Roger Moore. So, still, bless his heart. This apparently has been the Flick Lab. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, you can still join our International Cinema Challenge from 2019, where we will watch 20 films delicately handpicked at the laboratory premises for your viewing pleasure. One movie from one country, so 20 countries, 20 films, and... Hopefully you will join us for the next one, which is... <laughs> Pippi Longstocking from Sweden, which Henrik will absolutely love. 
Oh God. But apart from that, next week we will watch. Is it the Dead Poet Society? I guess it is. To follow with the trail of dead celebrity actors. Yeah. Next point of stop, Robin Williams. Until that, Robin Williams says. Yep. Or do you want to give another ending? Well, not precisely. Until next time, our dear listeners. Unless, of course, you know, you managed to find our evil doppelganger podcast, which is more exciting and with better English pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, you, you all evil you who comment on our pronunciation. Like, maybe you need to find the doppelganger podcast. <laughs> yeah, because we are not getting any better here. <laughs> yeah. This is a lost cause. <laughs> Bye, all. Bye. That being out of the way, you really know you're watching the man who haunted himself when. Nitrate, <laughs> 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 <laughs>